Well, let's go ahead and get started. We're close enough to 2 o'clock. I'm Dan Bouchelle. Uh, I'm the president of Mission Resource Network, which sounds a lot more important than it is. Um, president just means I'm the primary fundraiser uh, and I'm responsible to make sure that the uh, staff has the resources they need to do what they're doing. The guy who really knows what he's talking about is Caleb Sutherland over here. And uh, he's our primary trainer in disciple making. And uh, he's our executive officer, which just means that he actually runs stuff that I just talk about and raise money for. So um, I preached in Churches of Christ for 22 years um, and uh, did undergraduate work at University of Houston, uh, in behavioral science, and then several graduate degrees at ACU, uh, where Leonard Allen was one of my primary professors and mentors. Uh, very much indebted to, to Leonard, lifelong friend. Um, and then preached for three churches over a 22-year period of time, the last one at the Central Church in Amarillo, Texas, after Northern Oklahoma. Caleb, you want to give them kind of a real quick bio on who you are? Yeah. Grew up in the DFW area, um, planted a church in that area, um, and for about five or six years reached a bunch of 25-year-olds, which has its pros and cons on both levels, that after a while, everybody thinks you're weird because you raised a bunch of 25-year-olds, um, but it's also kind of cool to see that. And then I moved out to San Francisco, worked in the uh, corporate world in mortgage and wealth management, and then got uh, involved in disciple-making movements, moved back to the DFW area, um, and saw movement in and around the Dallas area, and then got brought on by City Team um, to oversee North Central and South America DMM before joining MRN and stepping into this role of kind of lead trainer. So we're going to kind of tag team back and forth a little bit today. My job is to tee up the ball. His job is to hit it a really long ways. Uh, we do want to have some time for interaction at the end in terms of, of questions. Um, how many of you have heard of disciple-making movements? Does that mean anything to you? So maybe a third of you have some experience. You may have heard it called church planting movements, CPM or DMM. Uh, and this was really new to me 10 years ago. I had not heard about it. Um, I had... Uh, I was a preacher's kid. I was raised in church, a fifth generation member of the Church of Christ at least. I don't know back beyond that. Um, and, you know, people talk about I was there every time the church doors were open. I was there when they were closed. Uh, and it was just kind of my whole life. Uh, and then went into ministry and, you know, got three graduate degrees and, and doing everything I could to help the church uh, really be on mission and understand its mission. And, and in those uh, two decades, one of the things I became convinced of was that the church had lost its sense of mission. Mm -hmm. And that we had become, unintentionally, and, and, and without a lot of awareness, more concerned with propagating the institutions that grew out of our mission instead of understanding what our mission was. And we felt responsible to maintain and populate our our expressions, our churches, and I don't use the word institution in a pejorative sense. Institution is neither negative or positive. It, it's, it's an expression of something. But we had large-scale institution structures with lots of infrastructure, buildings, staff, budgets, organization, programs that we all hoped would serve the mission of God. And almost everybody working in them was frustrated that they weren't not producing what we thought they ought to produce. That the life of our people was not the life that we thought the gospel should be producing in people. And 
one of the things I became convinced of and kept going back to school trying to figure out how to solve is, why are we not producing the kind of Christian life and community and dynamism that we say we offer? And one of the things I became convinced of is that I had spent most of my ministry career working on the wrong end of the problem. I was trying to figure out how to use the institution to make disciples instead of asking, what is a disciple, how are they made? And then how do we grow from there? I was trying to use a structure that was designed to do something other than what I thought our mission was, and I couldn't figure out how to reframe that. And we had an expression of church that grew up out of a particular time in history and need, and it met that need well, and it served well for a period of time, but the culture around us had shifted. The global context had shifted, and the things that we had inherited with our practices and our structures and our traditions and our habits were not serving us well. And we were losing now our second generation. Now the church that I was preaching for was still a strong, robust church, you know, over a thousand members. We had a large budget, had a lot of programs, but increasingly it was aging and it was graying. Very few of our elders' kids, if they went to church, went to our church if they were in town. If they did go to a church, they probably did not go to a church of Christ. Um, and this is not a good thing. Our church was cannibalizing other smaller, more conservative churches in the area, which is one of the reasons that we weren't suffering a lot of decline. But there were fewer and fewer of those little conservative churches for us to cannibalize. And we weren't intentionally doing it, but ever so often, a group of really committed, dedicated members would say, we can't do this anymore for some struggling church, and they would come over and join us and think they had died and gone to heaven, the most wonderful thing in the world, and this is just really awesome because they were comparing. But really, as we looked at it, the direction things are going, we're in trouble long term. Not immediately, not this decade, but we're in trouble. And Christianity in America is in trouble. And the rise of the nuns and the declining of the overall church, our churches work kind of off mission and struggling to get our feet going. And so here I was, I was 44 years old, had 22 years of experience looking at this going, um, I don't know how to go from here. And the church is happy, but to use a metaphor, there's no snow on the mountains, this river is going to dry up. And we need to do something now, but there's not enough sense of urgency to make the kinds of changes we need to make, and I'm not sure what they need to look like. And I went to about a two to four year period of depression and struggle trying to figure out what to do, because I felt responsible to lead, but I didn't know what to do. And so, come on in. So, um, during that time, praying through that, trying to figure out what I need to do, I was contacted by Mission Resource Network, and, and I was on some missions boards, and. They said, we want you to interview for the position here. And I'm like, you're crazy, right? You know I've never been a missionary. They said, well, that's okay. We've got a lot of those. We need a different skill set for this. And I began to talk to them. And I began to hear about church planting movements is what they were called at the time. Church planting movements. Focused on simply making disciples who make disciples in the community, using the Bible in an inductive study approach, focused on rapid multiplication, small, low infrastructure churches, focused on creating movements, focused on making disciples of Jesus who make disciples, who make disciples and multiply out in a spirit-led community focused on the authority of Scripture and without all of the structural complications 
that I was familiar with, and, and I was just intrigued. Like, I want to know more about this. Is this real? Um, and, and I felt like I want to learn from what God is doing in other parts of the world. And began to just notice that the most dynamic, explosive parts of the Christian world were all outside the West. Um, and whether it's the rise of the underground church in China, which went from 3 million to 180 million since 1950, or whether it's stories like what's happening in Rwanda, or Sierra Leone, or Burkina Faso, or Cuba, or whatever, we hear stories of these rapid, expansive movements of disciples. I'm like, I think it's time for me to learn from that. And so I came to MRN largely to learn from the global church, to learn from what God is doing, and then to make the Jews jealous and bring the story back and help the American church understand how they fit in that role. And so I've been on a learning process for the last 10 years, and we got to see some of that. We got to be a part of that. We, we trained our uh, missionaries in the disciple-making movement approach. And, uh, for example, the team that went to Rwanda in 2008 began really operating in 2009. Just since then, we know of about 1,000 churches that have been planted. We know of over 8,000 baptisms in 12 streams, at least, of movement uh, that are crossing the borders of every country. We don't have the ability to track it, and we didn't create that. And wherever God creates a movement, if anybody claims they own that, they're lying. Only God owns that. Only God can create a movement. and has a lot of tributaries feeding into that stream. But it's like, there's something God is doing here. We heard stories from people that we learned that were doing, operating in this way out of Sierra Leone, where they have just astronomical numbers of expansion. Um, Andy Johnson, who just joined our staff, was doing something similar, and it started in a different way with different people in Burkina Faso, where they saw a movement among the Dagara people that in a period of 10 years was measuring hundreds of churches and thousands of new believers. Caleb is the primary strategy coach for uh, a group in Cuba that, uh, when you started working with them, how many churches did they have? A little over 700. About 700, and today they're over 20,000. Um, and I'm not sure how all that happens. That's a God thing. And this is not just a strategy issue. It's not like you can just recalibrate and make this happen. But we need to learn from what God is doing in the global world. Now, everywhere one of these happens, the response that people have when they hear about it first is doubt. That's probably not real. Uh, or it, you're not telling us the whole story. Um, but the primary thing we hear when people hear these stories is, that sounds great, but it'll never work here. And we've heard that all over the world. Uh, Americans say that all the time, well, that might work in Rwanda, that might work in Sierra Leone, that might work in Cuba, but that would never work here. That would never work in a North American context. Post-Christian, post-modern, post-toasties, we, we don't, you know, we don't, that's not gonna work here. Um, I was in Egypt a few years ago meeting with uh, a guy who's an underground church planter there, and he had done work with the Sabamekic movements in Nepal before he was there. And that's what they were telling him in Nepal. Well, that's great, but it'll never work here. And then a movement started in Nepal. He relocates to Egypt, and they say, well, that sounds great, but it'll never work here. He says, that's what you hear everywhere you go. That'll never work here. It's just that that's common reaction. And, and that's not a... That's not, frankly, an unsurprising thing to say. And because where these movements have taken hold and where we've seen this rapid multiplication, 
those societies, those cultures are in many ways fundamentally different from postmodern, uh, developed cities like we have in our country or the areas we live. Our culture is different in our secularized, urban, individualistic culture. And America as a culture is so in love with big events where we can go and feel connected to something really big, but we can still be an isolated individual where we have no responsibility to be connected to anybody else. So we love the big event where we can be an isolated individual in a big crowd and feel the benefit of that, but not have to be messed with. That's, that's our culture. And that is a more challenging context within which to make disciples. And so there's a lot of cynicism around this ever working in North America. So, Caleb, what's wrong with the skepticism? And is this something that can happen in North America, in a North American context, in the kinds of cities and churches where these people come from? Um, so part of what I'll answer is, for one, there's nothing wrong with that skepticism. Um, there's a lot of legitimacy to what he says, but I'll also throw out some things to just my experience. So as I kind of said in my intro, I planted a church in the DFW area, and we targeted the 25-year-old single male, because at the time, about 10 years ago, it was the most unreached demographic in all of the U.S., and we hit our target, um, and we actually had 80% of our church was 25-year-old single males, which creates every single problem you just came up with in your head. Um, other men came to the church and went, I don't want to be here. Um, single women came in and goes, this doesn't feel safe. And so it created every problem that we thought we would have in this. Um, and then I moved out to California, and I was a part of a local church there, and I was trying to bring different people and get them involved in come come to church with them come to church there was one time I had just clothes like this on and um, one of my friends said I thought you said you were going to church and I said I am this is what we get to wear at our and he goes oh that's cool I said you want to come he goes no um, and then <laughs> later on I went for a run at lunch and I came back to my office and put my and they could hear this music that I was playing and they were like I love that what what is that what that's really cool music. And I was like, oh, it's actually, it's the worship at our church. They're like, that's cool. I was like, you want to come with me? No. And so what I realized were the two things that we keep trying to change, what you wear and what you listen to, um, to try to make the church more relevant, meant nothing to the lost world at all. They didn't care about all the things that we try to change. They still weren't coming. Um, and this kind of took a really weird turn for me. On um, one Easter Sunday, I said, hey, I was with a group of lost people, and I said, hey, I'm going to actually run to... Um, my worship gathering, and then I'm going to come back. And they said, why are you going to church? It's Easter. And I remember thinking, this is, <laughs> this is an interesting, I've never been in this world, um, a little bit. Like, it's like, you shouldn't be there. It's Easter. We don't do that. And so part of what happened is I started going, okay, what? Jesus still loves these people. Why do I keep trying to win them into what I know more than what's it look like to craft some things and create some things and put people around Scripture learning and kind of just exploring who God is. So I started these things called what we call discovery groups. You'll hear a lot of, where do we put the Bible in the middle of a group of people of already existing communities, meaning we don't have to create it and invite you into it. They already exist and they have questions. And in and around the San Francisco area, we saw over 12 of these groups start. Um, and some of them were just um, ordinary families that were coming around scripture. Some of them were groups of um, ladies that were meeting together trying to figure out what life was or what these things, why the church hated them. There were all kinds of reasons why we started seeing, I mean, um, just some really neat stuff. And so when that happened, um, like anything, and I'll explain why I think we're not seeing a lot of movement in and with um, 
America because of this. I get a phone call and get offered a job pretty quickly to go start doing DMM. And so I took it. Um, I wanted to get out of the corporate world, got back into ministry, moved back to DFW, and started seeing some groups start up. And we saw over 20 groups start in and around the DFW area. And these are not low-income guys. One of the groups that we have was about six or seven uh, CEO CFOs that felt unsafe in churches because a lot of the people that when they made decisions it affected them downstream and so they actually liked being able to meet together as a group of people um, in and around scripture so I say that saying we have seen these things work we've seen things begin to happen we've seen things begin to um, form however when we talk about a church planning movement, you hear the 20,000 new churches, and you hear 1,000 churches in this place, and 5,000 here, and over a million people baptized, and we haven't seen that in and around the U.S. And so part of what we want to talk about is why. Why are we not seeing those things while we are seeing around the world? So part of the beauty of the position that I've got to be in is I, I work with a group of people in and around the U.S. that are trying this. There's a guy in Boston, there's a guy in New York, there's guys in Kansas City, L.A., up in Seattle, Oregon area, all around Houston, Dallas. Um, and we talk, we meet, we get to dialogue. Why I also have this kind of other life where I go over to Cuba and into the Mediterranean and over there and get to see these things at work. And so I've kind of been in this weird position of going, why is it that we're not seeing this in America. And one of the most helpful things that I thought that, that a that friend of mine threw out there, and it's just been gravitating me, and said, what do you do when you want to inoculate something? You give it a little bit of, it, of the disease. If you want to inoculate somebody from measles, you want to inoculate somebody from whatever, you give it a little bit of a dead disease, and then the body can go away. I think that's what's happened in America, is we've given just enough of Christianity to where it's actually turned us where we feel like we're okay with it, but it's turned our whole senses against what actually is um, gospel-believing, gospel-following, Jesus-pursuing Christianity. And so part of what we want to talk about is what is that? What are all the ways that we've seen um, this inoculation happen and what's going on in and through us? So first thing I will say, what we see all around the world and what I see, why aren't we seeing it here in America, is America doesn't pray. Just bottom line, we don't pray. And when we go around the world and you see these guys and these women praying and fervently, and let me explain one of the reasons why I think this is. In a lot of the parts of the world, and why do we see this in a lot of rural areas instead of urban areas? It, yes, the complexity of relationships and the, the fragmentation of the relational fabric, all of those are really big issues. But I think the bigger issue is that in the rural world, in a lot of the undeveloped world, is that if God doesn't intervene, they don't eat. If God doesn't send rain, they don't have crops. Their family doesn't eat. I know in my house, we just went to Costco the other day, and we have enough food in our pantry for probably two months if, not, if, if I just fall out of a job. I don't, I've set up a kind of life that I don't need God every day to intervene in and through and with my world. And so because of that, we result into what works, what functions well, what, how can we just be all of those things rather than absolute dependence that if God doesn't show up, movement doesn't happen here. And so we've kind of created this, um, what I love that's been written out there is called functional atheism where in every way we theologically believe that there's a God, but functionally we act like we are atheists. 
So I think one of the big reasons why we aren't seeing movement is because we don't pray. We just don't. And so for America to see a movement, we actually have to see a prayer movement first, a, a result back. And we usually see prayer as just mechanistic rather than, I, I need God to show up today. If he doesn't show up, I can't do this. Um, and so one of the biggest things that we see around the world is when a group of believers, a group of people begin to pray and say, God, if you don't show up, I think this is why in the most desolate places, when I go into Cuba and it's this communist desolate place where they are restricted, they're given $25 a month to eat and that's it. And it costs probably $100 a month to eat for your family. And they know if God doesn't show up, my family starves this month and we see movement break out. The second thing is that I think we need to deconstruct our view of church. So one of the fascinating things that happened um, when I first learned more and more about DMM and I was trying it out in the DFW area, I wasn't seeing any success. I was three years in, wasn't seeing any success. I'd read all the books, I'd heard about the thousands of churches and it hadn't popped up yet. And I was really frustrated. Woke up at 4 a.m. I'm not sure if it was my anxiety or the Lord. I'll blame it on God. And so I went and ran at four o'clock in the morning, went for a run and just felt like I was meeting with my mentor later that day and said, I want you to go ask him, how did movement start? And so I went and asked him, I said, so, so did you just, I felt like I had heard this story that he got a download of seven things to do and then he went into the area and then he did the seven things and then he went and movement popped up. And he goes, no, 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 no. He said, I had to go in and we just tried stuff. And after a while, people wrote down what I was doing and then we kind of put it together and we listed it. Well, what happened was, is they did not know what Christianity was there. So when he put disciple-making movements, what he did was cultivate the culture of Christianity was disciple-making. He, he didn't try to build on something else. He didn't try to change something else. He didn't have to deconstruct anything else. He just got to build on it. Well, as good Westerners, we said, well, what did you do? Give us the seven steps, and then we'll just do the seven steps. And so we codified this culture that he built and tried to do seven steps. And if you're a fan of Brene Brown whatsoever, she will say, um, how-to doesn't work. If how-to worked, we'd all be skinny, we'd all be rich, we'd all have amazing marriages, we'd all, how-to doesn't work. But yet we've tried to how-to the church. These are the ways to develop your leadership. This is the way to get disciple-making in. This is the way to get more baptisms. This is the way to do whatever it is. And what it is is how do we cultivate a culture? How do we create an environment? And so we have to deconstruct our view of church to realize that we're creating environments for people to run and pursue and run after God in community. And so when you start seeing this, and I get people all the time going, man, I would love to come see a movement. And I was like, you can come to Cuba with me anytime you want, and you will be vastly unimpressed because you're going to walk around, and we're going to show you at about 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, you're going to see different places outside their homes. There's anywhere between 12 to 20 people that will meet in circles, reading the Bible, discovering God for the first time, and almost usually half of them are unbelievers. It's not going to be this amazing gathering. And what Dan said, we're fascinated with the big gathering. We're fascinated with that feeling, with the awe of it, with all of that stuff. And so there's a deconstruction that has to take place in us. Now, there's a big difference, though, between deconstruction and demolition, right? That, yeah. <laughs> but you that may need both. Um, <laughs> so. We are not saying yeah. blow up your churches. No. We're not saying demolish your churches. But... He's talking about deconstructing your concept of what church is to expand it 
to be broader, right? Yeah. So typically, and we worked with a lot of churches that one of the things that they do, every time I do a DMM training, I get one pastor or one leader or one guy or what, it doesn't matter. They'll come up to me afterwards and say, this was awesome. How do I get into my church? Every single time. And every single time I say, you don't. You go start this. You go start a bunch of groups. You go see lost people discover God. You go form some discovery things. And then go talk to your leaders about it. Because the ministers, the elders, the preachers at churches are bombarded with new ideas and new information and new thoughts. And there's tons of books out there on how to do something. And so all, if all you're doing is bringing theory rather than, hey, I got 30 people that are unbelievers that are now in groups trying to discover who Jesus is, now let's run with it, right? And so, yeah, I'm not saying go back and blow the church up and then try to redo it. We've, I've had three or four friends, and I had three or four friends that had tried to do that based on some of my trainings and now don't have churches, don't talk to me, and are in the corporate world really quickly. And maybe they needed to be. But the bottom line is that's not what we're pushing for. Okay? So I, I've got a question. Okay. I'm, I'm the minister of our, our church, and I have been starting disciple-making, attempting to learn how to do this for about 12 years. And I don't know if it's because I'm a, a minister, but I've had one successful, after I discipled him, he was a Bell Bonds agent, and he moved across country and he started a group. That's the only one that's advanced from there. But it seems like once I get them to accept Christ and start growing, they come to the church and they die. That's one of the reasons why I'm here and I'm frustrated. And my, el my elders seem to be my biggest, uh, biggest force against what I'm trying to do. Oh, yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of things involved. One would be, if I was a leader of a church, I would disciple my elders in and with that. That would be part of, let's all get on board with this. Because if it's a separate thing than what the elders see the value and the, the direction of the church, it'll always be. And that's what I talked about, creating a culture where we're all on board. This is what we want to see. This is how we want to advance this. More than you being the lone ranger out there that doesn't fit in with what you're doing. Does that make sense? It, it, it really is working through. I, I work, again, going back to, I get, probably in the first three years I did this, I was asked to do over 60 trainings in and around the U.S. And I was flying all over the place and going to different trainings, trying to do all this kind of stuff. And I learned really quickly that I will work with elder teams and mission teams, but I won't go just do, because elder teams and mission teams love to say, hey, come, we'll put on this. None of them came and they would put their church members to come be a part of it. And then they'd go, yeah, we'd love y'all to do that. But you didn't have the leadership, the development, the theology, the philosophy, the metrics. You get what you count. So, right? so at that point is when demolition happens, the deconstruction? I'm not going to make that decision for you um, or answer that. Um, I don't think it's always that simple. I think there is a, hey, what does this look like? What do we want to see happen? Um, what's the vision on the end? And then we'll always say start with the end in mind. So what, is our, what does our church want to see happen in the end? What do we need to do to get there? So. Caleb, I was just wondering if, uh, if some of the comments you were making a little earlier, were you sort of saying don't pour 
new wine into old wine skins. Yeah. Um, find the new wine skins. That's good. Get, get your wine into those. Um, it just seems to me like if you're trying to work with an established eldership, it is so hard. It's a huge paradigm shift to go to disciple making from our, our preconceived understanding of the way church functions. Uh, and I would say quit inviting non-Christians to your church. Jesus didn't say invite them to your church. He said go to them. And I think that's very, very that's important. Good. Because you go to their context where they're comfortable and there's where you can start pouring the new wine. Yep. And that's, so to go off of that, that's the third thing that I have is one of the things we've realized is we've evangelized and cultivated Christianity instead of the gospel. And so we have become evangelists of Christianity. We've become evangelists of church. We've become evangelists of all of that more than evangelizing the gospel and then let church form out of that. Um, and, and I think that that's a powerful, powerful thing to see that, that usually we start with church and then try to back into the rest of it. Um, and so it, it's a really neat thing to go, what would we do to evangelize the gospel, how do we move that direction? How do we create that um, to where we build that? Does that make sense? Where we begin to evangelize the gospel more than evangelize our church, more than cultivate our church. One, one way I like to say this is we, we think the gospel is about how do we get the lost in the church? When the gospel is about how do we get Christ in the lost? Yes. We've got the directionality. We assume that our church will disciple people against all of the evidence to the contrary. <laughs> The question is, how do we how do we leverage our church for the sake of getting Christ in the lost, instead of how do we use the population to prop up our church? And that's an ugly way of saying it, and it's not, and that's a distortion. But hopefully, the distortion helps you see the difference. The answer to his question um, confused me a little after what you said, because you said we need to go out and do these things and then bring it in. But what you also said to him is you need to convince the elders to a thinker like you and then do. One of the hardest things in the world is to convince elders, and I'm one of them, to convince elders in the first place. Yeah. What I would say is that's two different, yes, maybe can, there's two different sides to it. One, go do that on your own time. Go start groups, go be a part of that, go be an evangelist, basically, of you living that life to engage lost people to start groups. And then work with the elders, but don't try to mix the two and push it. Don't push this on the elders if you haven't discipled your elders, if you haven't worked for them. I'm sorry, but you've never lived in a small town. So. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm, being, I'm trying to be respectful, but that's how I, I roll. But I'm in a small town of 180 people, and what do you think happens? Oh, yeah. If I'm their friend, I'm going to support him, I'm going to go to church. That's where some of the problems well, I, I just trying to figure it out. When you say in small town, that happens. I mean, I, so the inoculation of Christianity, I'll answer really quickly. It doesn't take long inside of even the DFW that's 8 million people or whatever the number's at right now. Um, where pretty soon they go, <laughs> when we do discovery, so part of the things we would do is what's to say about God would say about man, what would, what would you change in your life? And one of the things that I've heard over, we've read Genesis 1, I said, what would you change in your life? Lost people will say, I'll start going to church. And I'll go, where do you see that in the passage? I don't. I just figured that's what you wanted. Like, I mean, it, it happens all the time. Um, and it also happens, one of the reasons we'll talk about why we don't see a lot of movement. I've had people that 
track with us for 12, 13, 14 weeks, and then they're starting to read the Bible. So they sit down at lunch at, at their desk, and they're reading Scripture, and a Christian comes by and asks them, hey, what do you read? What? And starts talking, I didn't know you were a Christian. I'm not. I'm starting to read it, kind of have a group of people. What church do you go to? I'm not really going to a church. Well, you should come with me. I'll pick you up on Sunday. And, you know, you can't be mad at that guy. They're trying. But at the same time, it's like, ah, it's so frustrating. So that is, while I understand the small town complexity, that also adds to, we deal with the same thing of what it is. So, um, but that's some of the strategy of how to do it, not necessarily some of the philosophy behind it. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. The other thing I would say with the evangelizing, uh, two more things, evangelizing Christianity and not the gospel. Um, we've second, what I call we secularized the gospel. We've made it a, per, we've really sold it in. It's personal salvation, it's private morality, it's individualism, it's a compartmentalism. We've, we've really tried to secularize it. How do we make this where it's sellable rather than what is just the call of the gospel? What is the call of God? Come, follow me. One of the most fascinating things to read through, um, we talk about this, we disciple to the cross and from the cross. So the whole idea of discipleship for us is where you're discipling people to Jesus, um, and then they're baptized, and then you just continue to disciple rather than get them baptized and then start the discipleship journey. And when you just get them baptized, and this has happened all the time, right? We're like, you want Jesus? Do you want to go to hell? And they're like, no. Do you want? Didn't, no, I don't want any of that. Then get baptized. Meet Jesus. Fine, I'm in. And then as soon as they get in, okay, cool. Now you got to start giving 10% of your money. You got to quit sleeping with your girlfriend. You got to They're like, that's not at all what I bought into. I'm out. You know, and we've seen this time and time. But when you disciple them through, and pretty soon as we've seen Muslim background believers now, when they were, when they were, Muslims, they're sitting there reading the text and they start responding, what would you do with Genesis 2 and 3? I'm going to stop beating my wife. Why? Because it says God was, that man was, or the woman was created in the image of God and I shouldn't hit the image of God. I didn't tell them to do that. And if I start with that or anytime I'm like, hey, now I'm going to be changing their culture rather than Jesus and God changing their heart. It's way different. And so we talk about how do we disciple to the cross and from the cross. Um, the fourth thing, whatever number we're on now, um, I would say one of the things that we have to do is we need to separate American achievement, success from kingdom expansion. Um, we have timetables in America that if we haven't succeeded, then we have to redo it, right? What, what is, every, if Jesus was a, was a preacher in one of our churches, and we were his elders, we would have fired him because he only had 12 at the end of three years, right? We're like, how, how well are you doing? You got 12? You're done, you know? It just, it's that idea that we measure on all the wrong things in terms of what does it look like. Nobody wants to be the sending church for Jeremiah, right? How'd you do? I went out, wilderness, preached forever, didn't see a single convert and died, you know? Tell that to your mission team. Celebrate. Raise money on that. You can't. Um, and so we like to see more American success, American achievement. How do we move through on that? And the truth is the gospel moves at the speed of relationship, not the speed of information. And that's been one of our biggest problems, that we have become so much faster at moving information around through Internet, through emails, through all of the social media stuff. But... The gospel in Christianity doesn't move at the speed of information. It moves at the speed of relationship. And so we have to, we have to reallocate how are we spending our time? How are we, 
Who are we investing in? How are we going about it? The other thing is that our information knowledge-based society in the U.S. keeps movement at bay. What I mean by that is we love to know more, understand more. It's, all, it's a lot of intellectual type understanding. I was talking with a friend of mine um, who's Indian and he said, uh, man, you Americans don't understand discipleship at all. I said, why? And he said, because the whole concept of knowledge in India is if you can't do it, then you actually don't know it. So, so there is no this higher education for something. If you haven't done it, you can't say you know it. And too often we become people who know a ton but haven't done anything. Um, he, he uses the illustration that th this is how. So think about in our math system. So if my, I have a seven-year-old. If I'm working with him and, I, you know, hey, Grayson, what is 10 plus 10? He's like, mm, 48. Oh, don't worry about that. Let's move to algebra you would all go, you can't, you got to wait. But yet in discipleship and working with people, we'd go, so it says to love your neighbor, but you never do it. Don't worry about that. Let's move on to the Trinity. Let's move on to the complexity of three and all the, all the craziness that goes on with that, right? No, just stay with what it means to love your neighbor. And let's wait until you love your neighbor before we move on to these deep theological complexities. And so our knowledge-based society is actually keeping us from deep obedience and loving and yearning and moving towards Jesus. The next one is, um, I would also say that we're ignoring a, major, a majority of the gifts God gave the church. We've elevated preacher-teacher and we've missed the evangelist. We've missed that kind of apostolic role of moving into new things or the the apostolic function of moving into new territory, of seeing kingdom expand in new areas. We've, we've missed the other. We've actually gone back against the Reformation idea where there was a papal system, and the whole breakdown of the papal system was we don't believe that everybody should have to go to one person to hear the gospel proclaimed. But now we've reverted back to that, kind of what Sam was talking about, where, hey, you should come hear my preacher. He's really good. And we've actually created a papal system inside of our already existing societies. Where you should come to me, you should hear our preacher, you should, rather than empowering the priesthood of all believers to actually go out and believe that people can understand the word of God. So it's a shift. The last thing. Um, we've made the gospel a theological concept to understand instead of a person and story to follow. We've, we've made the gospel uh, five parts of the gospel rather than it's about a person, it's about a story, and it's about following this guy. And, and more and more and more what we're seeing around the world when we see movements take off is that they go, it's about a person and following a person more than it is understanding these five components. And we love to break down the five components of the gospel, the nine steps of the gospel, the six, whatever it is, rather than it's a person and a story that actually lived here and we listen and we follow and we obey and we just, it is a human interaction that we have with this divine God. So I think those are the main reasons why we're not seeing movements happen in America, but I think we can. I think we are starting to see some of this. I think we are starting to see some people become dissatisfied and go, man, we've got to do some things differently. 
think we're seeing some good leaders pop up. Um, the last thing I would say is one of the reasons why I don't believe that we're seeing movement happen here in America is we're not funding missionaries for America. We pay preachers. We pay people who have roles inside of church. But outside of that, I've got, not joking, hundreds of friends that are all struggling for money. And if they're a good leader, and if they're actually doing DMM well, they get sucked into organizations or churches who want that kind of leader. And it doesn't take long for guys like me to get sucked into a church because we're struggling to raise fifty, sixty thousand a year to try to support our family, and a church comes around and says, "Hey, we'll pay you, and you get insurance and benefits and retirement." And it's like, got to take care of my family. Mm-hmm. So we're just not putting the manpower and the leaders into places. And I'll finish with this: one of the most powerful things in DFW. I was sitting in a coffee shop, saw this guy trying to figure out a little bit. It was weird because we could both tell that we were there for weird reasons, evangelize each other, and. Um, as we were kind of having this conversation, I asked him, I was like, where are you from? And he was being very vague, but he said Southeast Asia. And after a while, realized that his church in Southeast Asia, and he would never tell me what country, sent him to America to evangelize us because we were lost. Mm-hmm. And I just sat there going, wow. We've, we keep sending and we're missing what does it look like to evangelize this area. So, anyway. I was, so, I was always comparing it to ICLC. That's a great question. Um, and it has a theological root to it. Uh, the ICLC was focused on discipling, and they got a lot of things right. Um, but the ICOC, in their discipling practices, created a power dynamic where the discipler had total control over the lives of the person they were discipling. And they didn't take into consideration the brokenness in the life of the discipler. And they fed a power tendency and it created kind of a cultic environment that tended to eventually squash the life of the people and then there was a heavy legalism in it that was counting how many Bible studies you're having and and they saw rapid multiplication but not everything that grows is healthy weeds and cancer grow fast too and so uh, it eventually there was so much good about it that it did bless a lot of lives but I think there was a defunct theology in that I don't think they had a deep appreciation for the Trinity, and I think they had more of an Islamic understanding of God than a Christian understanding of God. And what I mean by that is the Islamic understanding of God says God is great. God is powerful. We must submit to him. But if you don't have a robust Trinitarian understanding of God, that God, is, God has power, but God is love, and God can't be love unless you have the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and mutual submission to one another. And they were leveraging power over instead of love and support alongside of and beneath. And if you have a bad theology, it will eventually work itself out in practice and it will crush even if it multiplies rapidly. So I think you had a, I think you had a problematic lack of understanding of the robust trinity and the, the self-giving servant posture of God. And so even though there was a lot of help and a lot of understanding, eventually that toxicity worked itself out and then collapsed. And there's some really healthy stuff now happening with a reconstituted version of the ICOC, and there's some folks here from that background. And I'm telling you, they're doing some really great stuff in the area of discipling. They've connected to a lot of the stuff that's happening into the CPM, DMM world. Uh, and God is redeeming a lot of those stories. And so uh, there's a significant difference in terms of, in the DMM world, the, dis- the discipler doesn't have that kind of power over them. And we great heavy focus on um, if you're a disciple maker, 
you don't take over and run the lives of people. You're in a servant position and you're helping them discover and they have to own and you're coaching them toward obedience, but you are not over them and they're not accountable to you in that respect. Um, I don't, Caleb doesn't have a background with the COC enough to really understand the ICOC thing. So I don't know if you would want to speak anything else in there. That's great. Let me, let me tell you a, another story before we open it up to questions. Just kind of rethinking my experience from 22 years as a, a preaching minister. Um, the last church where I was, the Central Church in Emerald, is a wonderful church. Uh, I moved there because their model broke. They had gone through, they had been the most programmatic, seeker-oriented, institutionally kind of focused church, and they rode the progressive Church of Christ way from the 70s to the 80s to about 2,000 members, and then they'd been in decline for 15 years. They were in a downtown area. It was a very diverse area, and they were a block from an apartment complex where prostitutes worked, and drug deals went down. They were a block from a, uh, a park where it was the place to go if you were a, a pedophile or uh, looking for a prostitute. Or I mean, it was just a rough area, and members were stepping over their neighborhood to worship and then going back to the part of the town they wanted to live in. And multicultural city, and I thought, man, they, and they, they're broke, they just like, come help us, we don't know what to do. And I'm like, this is a great place for me to experiment with and start a missional revisioning of the church. And, and that did not go the way I had it pictured in my head, okay? But a lot of great things happened, and we got our people out and serviced the community, we became the church that, that loved on homeless people. We had a church where homeless people and millionaires sat on the same pew and knew each other and had a relationship. There was a lot of good stuff. And then there was people who were walking out the door going, I don't feel like it's my kids, it's safe for my kids to be here and all that kind of stuff. It was a really dynamic environment. But the big thing I look back on and I misunderstood was the directionality of the gospel. Because ultimately I thought when we go out, the job is to bring them back in. So one of the things we did, we bought a house across the street. It was an old dilapidated big house that had been a squatter's paradise. I mean, this is just where homeless people squatted. We bought it, stripped it down to the studs, completely redid it because the people who lived around our building would not walk in our building because it communicated privilege, it communicated wealth, it communicated power, and it excluded people. We had two elevators in our building on either side of our auditorium that cost over $100,000 in 1984 when they were put in. Uh, this is just not a church that people walk into who are street people and poor people who live in that neighborhood. So we bought this house, renovated it, started doing Bible studies in there, started offering food and a variety of things, and it took us 18 months for anybody to take us seriously. And then we'd have three people. Before long, it was 12. It eventually grew to about 200. The big question our leaders were asking is, but how many of them are coming across the street to big worship? How many of them are coming across the street to big church? How many are coming to real church? And um, the, it was a fishing pond for the real success, which was to get them into our building for our events. And we, we got some to come across, and we baptized people. We were involved in, in homeless shelters, and we were involved in various kinds of outreach. And we, we could lead people to Jesus. We could bring them into our church. Within three months, we were the greatest church in the world. They loved us. They told everybody about us. But within about 18 months, they were out. Still thinking we were a great church, but they never fit. They didn't assimilate. They didn't fit the culture. We were Rivendale on their journey, but they had to go somewhere else to find the kind of community that fit them. And 
of this 200 people who are coming, we, we couldn't handle them in groups. So we had them broken into groups of 12, and we were doing all of these studies. And we didn't realize we had planted a church. But we wouldn't treat it as a church, and we wouldn't let it be that. And we could have done that all over the city, but for us, the ultimate metric was who shows up in our building on Sunday morning for real church. And I still remember the elders meeting, and these are amazing guys. I love these guys. But I wish that I could go back in time and have a little bit different conversation. And we're saying, we got these people coming. It's on Thursdays. All the stuff people going in. Um, they call it their church. What if we begin to treat it like a church? And the decision was, if we call it church, then they have to play by the same rules we do, which means it can't be instrumental, women can't do this, whatever. Oh, that would kill it. Okay, so we can't call it a church. I don't know what you call it. God calls it a church. And we had to deconstruct our understanding of church, and we, we could have made some other decisions that let it be a movement, but it would have never flowed into our building. But we were not willing to put the church at risk for the sake of the gospel. And I think the question, I think what Jesus would say to us in our churches is, if you love your church, you will lose it. But if you will lose your church for the sake of the gospel, you will find it. And I think we love our churches more than we love the lost. And we don't mean to, but we love our churches so much that we want the lost to come help us save our churches. Instead of our churches being the instrument God uses to reclaim the lost. And if we're not willing to put our churches at risk for the sake of the gospel, we don't believe the gospel or understand the gospel well enough. Now, one more story. I was a couple started coming to our church. I noticed him. I was up preaching two or three weeks. Uh, he was obviously of Latino background. She was Anglo. They were sitting on the back pew. They looked like they didn't feel comfortable. They were coming every week, and they were paying way too much attention to be regular church members. Just hanging on every word. They would slip out early, not talking to anybody. So I finally got out early you know, during the invitation song, I, I caught them. Who are you? They told me their story. Can we go for coffee this afternoon? We went to coffee. Tell me your story. He was an ex-con. Um, they had been living together for years. Uh, they had a seven-year-old, a three-year-old, and she was pregnant. Her, fa her grandfather was a Church of Christ preacher, and he was the only stable person in her life, her grandparents. Mm. Mother was an alcoholic. She just had a rough life. Um, they kind of met, and here they were, not married, all these kids. She's like, I'm pregnant, and I want a different life for my kids than I've had. And the guy said, I looked up one day, and everybody I knew growing up within my neighborhood was either dead or in jail. And I'm out, and I don't want that life. And we love what we're hearing but we don't belong in your church. We don't feel comfortable in your church. I said, oh, no, you're wrong. You would be loved and accepted here. And they were. And I'll tell you, if somebody walks into that church and they will stay long enough to let somebody talk to them and they don't presume and, and um, project judgment on other people, which lost people do when they walk into church. They, they project judgment that's not really there. But if they'll come in, they will be loved. They will be loved. They'll be welcome regardless of the background. 
and said, you will, you'll be loved here. And I started studying with him. And, you know, I was like, well, do I have to get them married before I set the first objective here? She's got a bun in the oven. They got to it. It's like, ah, what's the point? Let's just, let's get them focused on Jesus first. We'll solve that later. So we started talking about Jesus. And we started doing a Bible study. And, man, it was easy. Baptized them. Then we started doing premarital counseling. Got them married. I hope it's, you know, okay with you that I baptized them before we got them married. I don't think God's too worried about that order exactly in that situation. But you can make your own judgment. But anyway... Then I was trying to find, how do I get them connected to our church? So I take them to a Bible class. It's got people about their age. And I'm just beating myself to death trying to find somebody who can connect with them, welcome them in. And they're having a hard time attached. And it's not that people aren't warm to them. They are. But culturally, they don't fit with our people. And then I'm like, you know, who do you have that are friends that you can invite and come and I'll study with them? And they're like, oh, our friends would never come study with you. They'd be terrified of you. You're like Godzilla to them. We would never be. What I would do now would be entirely different. I would want the church to be a warm, inviting, supportive place to equip them to take the gospel into their neighborhood. I would say, you're probably going to be here with us for a while to kind of grow and nourish. But could I, could I work with you? And could you just train you how to start sharing what you're already experiencing and the freedom you're having in Jesus and you share that with the people that you know in your neighborhood and coach you up on that and debrief you on that and then you start a group and I don't ever need to show up and what the goal here is not to get your friends in our church the, the goal is to use our church as a launching pad to get the gospel through you into your neighborhood and success is a new community a new church that forms out of an existing community that you have in your neighborhood. And instead of a child, we have a grandchild. That's the difference. The church has a very important role to play, but to give blessing to an encouragement to something else to spring up here around. So yep. um, we've got a few minutes to take questions. Uh, we've got two more days. We're going to talk tomorrow about what the American church can learn from the global church about disciple making. We've got some practical stuff on Friday, but we got a few minutes for questions. Let's just say, I know you might say everybody can do this, but there is a certain giftedness to evangelism as well. I think that's one of the things we, we miss out in our established churches is we don't pick the right people that can do evangelism well. Yeah. Who, who, are, who are the people that you, what are the qualities you see saying, oh, now that would be a movement maker. That yeah. would be a... So I'd say there's two things to that. One, um, in Timothy, actually Paul says, do the work of the evangelist. And then later he talks about the gifting of evangelists. So I would say there are two different things. We're all called to do the hard work of evangelism. Part of what we train is you can't have spiritual conversations until you can have normal conversations. If you can't just be normal with lost people, then you probably can't really lead them in the gospel. So part of it we actually look at, do people, can they just go up and they're engaging and they have conversations with people and all that stuff. We also talk about can you move them, find somebody that can kind of take them into depth um, pretty quickly. Uh, we use a series, we'll talk about this on Friday, we use a series of conversations called casual, it's critical conversations, casual, meaningful, spiritual. It's the idea that you walk people through these processes before, you know, these kind of conversations. The idea, think about it in your home, there's the porch, and then there's inside your living room, and then you're inside like maybe your bedroom or whatever. 
you don't, if somebody comes to your house you've never met before, you're not going, hey, come on into my bedroom, let's talk. You know, that's just not what you do, right? You talk on the porch for a little bit and maybe invite them in a little bit. And there's people that are just good at that. They're good at engaging and then welcoming them in and having those conversations. You're more looking for people, can you engage and be friends with lost people? Those are the best to actually just help them and equip them to have gospel conversations. The people that are more awkward are harder. I'm just going to tell We'll go this way. I'm just going to tell him the best person you're asking for is the person you just baptized on Sunday. And, and that goes back to what he was saying, though, that our institution doesn't like that. That's scary. There's not a lot of control on that. But he's got all these friends he wants to share Jesus with. And he is the best person you'll ever find. Yes, Have you seen groups that grow and become toxically institutional, and how do you prevent that? Define toxically institutional. Well, how you, how, you, how you described in your introduction. Yeah. Churches that focus on programs and not mission and ministry. Not everything that's institutional is toxic. There's right. a difference. But yeah. institutionalism but, but, can consume so many resources that it doesn't have the ability to multiply. One of the things that helped me, Dan kind of said this, was Jesus tells us to make disciples and he says he will build his church and too often we say Jesus we'll do your job and you do our job we'll build the church you go make disciples and so some of it is learning balancing that for me more than anything and if again if we're creating a culture of it and you're just continuing where is that in the discovery process that we use one of the questions that we actually only have really one question that we'll say is where do you see that in the passage and so as people are trying to form different things um, we talk about all groups, churches, et cetera, institutions, nature, function, and form. We want to start with the nature of it and then allow the function to come out of it, and then we'll worry about forms later. When you start with forms, it, it limits the nature and function of that. So part of it is to continue work on the nature of something rather than think if you just reform it, it'll be better. You can't just reinstitutionalize an institution and think that it's going to change the institution. Um, you actually have to change the nature of it. Does that make a little bit more sense in it. No, a lot of it. <laughs> I guess I guess I'm I'm trying to picture the the, the life cycle because you, you start you started with one person. Yeah. And in your example, at one point there was a group of 200 people. So I'm just trying to picture the. the yeah, the, the but that's four cycle. or five years. That's four or five years in. First, it's three. It's three for a long time. Then it's twelve. Then it's 18, and then all of a sudden it's 50, and then all of a sudden it's 85, and then, you know, and, and you have to restructure along those pieces. But it, it developed organically, and it, it's like a hockey stick in terms of its metrics. Yeah. Another helpful thing for me in the disciple making world, and I'll say this really quick when Jesus gave the Great Commission, right before that, said they went up there, some worship and some. Yeah. <laughs> And if that's us, we're like, okay, come on back. I gotta, I gotta, I'm not ready to leave yet. We gotta make sure this is right. Jesus goes, oh, you got it. And we just left doubters to help start the church. And it's like, why would we ever do that? Some of it's trusting. It really is. And I know that this is a cop-out spiritual throwout. Trusting the Holy Spirit cares more about this than we do. The, the Holy Spirit truly cares about the church, truly cares about theology, truly cares about some of that way more than us. So there's the idea of how do we lead into that and trust that. And I think Jared, uh, Jesus models that with the Holy Spirit's coming, um, there's doubters, and I'm stepping away from it.
All right, so we need to wrap up. Uh, just let me give you a, a little bit of a preview. Tomorrow we're going to talk about what can America learn from the global church about disciple making. Uh, if you're leaving this saying, okay, enough about that prayer and spirit stuff, but what are the steps? Welcome to America. You're going to fit in really well here. Um, but we will talk more practical steps in terms of what we can learn from the global church. On the last day, we'll, we'll talk about disciple making steps you can take in your church. Anybody can take. What I want you to walk out of here with, though, is a sense of we are not going to strategize ourselves into this. This is not a program. Same time, same place. This is a metallic, yeah, same time, same place, same bat channel uh, tomorrow. We're, we're going to, uh, what, what Caleb said about prayer, uh, about obedience, about focus on making the disciple, if, if, if we bypass that stuff and we want to get to the mechanisms, then you're probably going to do a really good job of teaching disciple-making seminars to people who will go teach training disciple-making seminars who will go train type of disciple-making seminars, and you'll do a good job of replicating disciple-making seminars and have no disciples. <clears throat> so we need to start with a posture of humility, prayer, learning, obedience, focus on the few, kind of deconstructing our overly complex understandings of church and getting back to this basics of what is a disciple, how are they made, how do we invest in these few relationships, how do we get our people thinking that way and praying and praying and praying, discovery, learning, then we can take some steps beyond that. Any closing thoughts and words? No, I, you know, we started off as America inoculated this and I think we're seeing more and more this shift over to where we're, we're seeing blips on the radar of these things beginning to take place and people going, I want to be a part of that. It is happening in America, but it's happening mostly among immigrant populations and what we think of as marginal populations. And the dominant population of our country is still very much wedded to older families <coughs> and we're not humble enough and desperate enough to see it happening quite yet among our own dominant populations. Um, old ways, patterns, habits, structures. Thank you. You've been really attentive, very thoughtful, uh, and hopefully some of you will come back tomorrow and we'll, we'll unpack a little bit more about this.